welcome to Military History Plus, the podcast that explores the history of war in breadth and depth. My name's Professor Gary Sheffield and my co-host is... Dr. Spence Jones. Hi, Spence. Hi, Gary. How are you today? I, I, I'm fine. I gather you're suffering from a bit of a fro- frog in the throat. I'm, I'm afraid so. I've had this for about a week and it's one of those things that just clings on like a limpet. just can't quite get it out of my nose, but hopefully some military history today will be just the tonic. <clears throat> well, if you collapse into sort of a, a fit of coughing, uh, Tom, our tech whiz, will have to edit that bit out, but hopefully we won't come to that. <laughs> okay, but before we, we kick off with today's subject, um, I'd like to say that we're recording this after we have already released the first few episodes into the wild. And I think both of us would like to thank everyone who's listened and for all your feedback, which has been overwhelmingly positive. Now, I think it's fair to say we've had a tiny handful of uh, dissenters, uh, but they're the equivalent of the letters that um, every writer has 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 received, uh, written in block capitals with green ink. But hey, you can't please everyone. Have you ever had any of these uh, Letters, Spence? Uh, I certainly have, Gary. I've got almost a hall of fame of these kind of letters. And I'd also extend those to review to book reviews because I've got a, a book review I printed out and actually pinned to my cork board at work. <clears throat> and it was a one-star review of a book. And the review actually read, I received this book for free, but I still feel that I was overcharged. One star. And I, I pinned that onto a sort of wall of shame at work. So yes, I, I've, I've received a fair few bruising reviews, letters, comments in my time. Well, my worst one uh, came after I appeared on uh, a Time Watch documentary about Hague in, I think, 1997 or 1998. And um, the stuff that appears on the television, it is heavily edited. And maybe I didn't include all the nuances and subtleties that I would have done in a seminar room or or, or writing a book. Anyway, but I I was teaching at Sandhurst at the time. And um, I got this letter addressed to me at Sandhurst. When I opened it, it was Block Capitals Green Inc. saying, you obviously teach your cadets to walk very, very slowly into machine gun fire. You're an absolute disgrace. and You shouldn't be teaching at Sandhurst. And, you know, he didn't even put a stamp on the envelope. So I had to pay in order to be insulted. (laughs) Oh, no. You paid for your insults. My goodness. (laughs) Oh, that trumps mine, I think. Well, can I say that it helps us hugely uh, if listeners leave reviews and a rating on whatever podcast platform you use to listen to Military History Plus. Uh, we prefer hugely positive reviews and five-star ratings, of course. So if you can leave a review and a rating, we'd be hugely grateful. Okay, well, today is uh, the last of Series 1 of Military History Plus. Uh, don't worry, we will be back in the autumn. And we're going to do a deep dive into the creation of the British First World War myth of lions led by donkeys. Okay, Spence, being good academics, we need to define our term. So what is the whole lions led by donkeys myth? So in a nutshell, Gary, it's the idea that British High Command, the military command, and Douglas Hay, Commander-in-Chief of the British Expeditionary Force in France, especially, were utterly incompetent, that they threw away the lives of their men recklessly and callously, and that the command were donkeys and that the soldiers were lions because so many of them were volunteers, they fought bravely, they did what they were told to do, but they paid for the ignorance of the commanders with their lives. Thanks. So that's a, a very powerful critique, if it's true. And over the next few minutes, we'll discuss the extent to which it is true or extent to which it's a myth. So I'm in my area of expertise, put another way, I'm back in my deep comfort zone 
I guess same's true for you, Spencer. Absolutely, Gary. So this is very familiar ground for both of us. We've contributed to the development of this historiography ourselves in our own ways. It's a subject that's fascinating in itself because when you have a conflict as vast as the First World War that has such far-reaching impacts, the history of the history, or what we historians call the historiography, becomes a subject in itself. And I've actually got a, a great colleague at Wolverhampton, Dr. Adam Dighton, whose specialist subject is the study of the history of the history, which is quite remarkable, but it's also such a rich and interesting subject and how these ideas are created, how they have such enduring power, which I think we still feel to today, more than a century on from the First World War, we still in discussion terms, we still have to grapple with the legacy of writing from the 1920s, 30s, uh, 40s and 50s. And I think that's something that a lot of people aren't necessarily aware of, how deep that history is and how lasting the influence was of several key volumes in that period. And of course, that's what we're going to be talking about today. And of course, in certainly not true in the case of the historiography of every historical subject, but the First World War has ramifications far beyond academia. Uh, only have to think back a few years to the centenary of the First World War, uh, 2014 to 2018, to see the way in which these views, particularly the lions led by donkeys views, coloured not only the way that ordinary people thought, but actually how the government thought and mm -hmm. how the First World War was commemorated. Anyway, but we'll come on to that uh, in a later podcast aspect. So where are we starting off? What's the first key volume we're going to be looking at? So there's so many places we could have started as the literature of the First World War is absolutely vast and it's absolutely fascinating. But for reasons of simplicity and also because of its overwhelming importance, in my opinion, the best starting place for the historiography of the First World War is the British official history of the First World War. Uh, officially, Military Operations France and Belgium, a multi-volume series published uh, between the 1920s, with the very last volume actually being published in the 1940s. The first volume came out in 1922, and the last volume came out after the Second World War had finished. So it had been a remarkable historical journey to create this series. And it was edited and largely written by Brigadier General James Edmonds. And Edmonds himself is a fascinating character. He was a pre-war staff officer. He'd gone to war with the BF in 1914 as the Chief of Staff of 4th Division. But during the retreat from Mons, or more specifically, the retreat from Le Cateau for he, he'd suffered some form of breakdown, whether this was a physical breakdown or a nervous breakdown, has never been fully established, but he was invalided out of the line. He never would hold a post close to the front line again. He'd ultimately recover, and he'd serve in GHQ for the remainder of the war. And that made him rather bitter. He was always troubled that he, a man who had a reputation as a formidable intellect, his pre-war nickname was Archimedes because he was considered so intelligent. He was always bitter that the, he had never had his had a chance to put his talents to good use. But he did have his, a chance to shape the, the history in a way that is quite remarkable. And that was that he was made the editor and the primary author of the official history in the 1920s. So that's a pen portrait of James Edmonds, but I can see you've got something you want to say on this, Gary. Well, simply, I, I, I remember from my reading about Edmonds that he was a, a student at the Army Staff College at Camberley before the First World War. And either the course was pretty undemanding or he had a formidable capacity for work, or indeed both, because he co-wrote History of the American Civil War with his brother-in-law while he was there. So you remember reading someone, uh, another student at the time, um, uh, took, took advantage of the time to qualify as a barrister. Yeah, so perhaps we're talking about you know, the staff college being not all that it might be in terms of, of, of rigour, but the, the serious point is that um, 
Edmonds, as you rightly say, had a reputation as a, as an intellectual within the army. Um, but I think it's worth bearing in mind that he was not an academic. In other words, he had not been trained in a university. He had, didn't have a PhD. And I think that has a bearing on how he came to write. That's absolutely true. And just to add to that, before the war, Edmonds put in a, a job application to become a lecturer at the, at the Oxford University and received a rather brusque reply back. And he, one thing Edmonds could do was he could hold a grudge and he would hold a grudge his entire life if you got on his bad side. And he was very unhappy about his, his rather brusque uh, rejection from Oxford. But, but coming to the official history, he, he had an incredible broad scope to write the history as he wished. And Although we've just cast a little bit of cold water in Edmonds' intellectual ability, one thing he did have was an absolutely staggering capacity for work. He would carry out his, um, he'd start his morning each way, he'd do some exercises, in his own words, by swinging weights around his head, uh, and then he'd sit down and he'd just get to work. And he had a, a formidable task in front of him with a relatively small staff, which meant that every, almost, almost every volume, certainly concerning the Western Front, bears his stamp. He wrote most of this, and if he didn't write it, he his editor's pen was heavily employed. With only one exception, and that was, of course, the volume about Arras, which was written by Cyril Falls, who we'll be discussing a little bit later. But Edmonds's approach initially was to write a volume, first volume was, of course, about 1940, which was appearing in a background of very, very much a contested history, because the Battle of the Memoirs had already started, with Field Marshal Sir John French had published his sensational and sensationally dishonest memoir, 1914, publishing it actually in 1919, which he'd taken pot shots at everybody and filled it with all kinds of artificially inflated statistics and wild ranting. He destroyed his reputation, but in the process, he'd, he'd essentially fired the starting pistol that everybody now had to get their view of the First World War out. And this was, we're easy, it's easy to forget, this was a very combustible period in publishing in the 1920s. Everybody wanted the tell-all memoir. Everyone wanted the scoop. And into this, Edmonds was tasked with trying to bring some sort of normalcy to the approach of this. So he had to write a book that was not especially controversial. He he had to sort of pour cold water on this debate. And he also had to try and produce a book that was going to be useful for the army, that in the future, the army might consult this book and try and learn something from how they fought the First World War, perhaps apply these lessons to a future conflict. So Evans got a really difficult task. I'm just thinking about that. <clears throat> um Without being rude about the very many military students I've taught over the years, and I've had some brilliant ones, I could just imagine what the response of a, of a staff college student would be to being handed, you know, 12 volumes of Edmund's official history and told to go away and read them. Um, I wonder truly how many people read these books in detail. I would say almost none, uh, which irritated Edmund's as well. And there's some fantastic correspondence in Edmund's personal papers, which are in the, in uh, the Little Heart Centre at King's College. In um, 1939 and 40, where he's getting army officers who are going out to France, they're fighting a new war against Germany, and they're writing to him, because of course in the army in, in France is expecting a German offensive. They're writing to him and saying, can, uh, can you tell me when the 1918 volume dealing with the, the Kaiser offensive is going to be published? And Edmonds is really annoyed because he's already published that volume. It's been out. Uh, he has to write these <laughs> irritated <laughs> letters back to these officers saying, well, you, it's already out. You should have bloody read the thing. <laughs> um, so I don't think any, I, I think very few people read it. And 
Um, if I can just throw in a, an anecdote myself from the past, no names mentioned, uh, but I, I once knew a, a historian, he's no longer working in the field, he, he got a job in um, earning a lot more money. He once said he wrote an article about the official history in which he'd actually put in a huge clangor. He didn't, he only realised it later. And it's passed through peer review and everything else. And he only, he only noticed it um, years later. And he realised that clearly the peer reviews didn't know the official history either. And he, he put it down to the fact nobody alive has read all the volumes of the official history cover to cover, <laughs> even a century. I think it's worth mentioning, I should have done this at the beginning, Today, we're discussing specifically the Western Front. So uh, people interested in Gallipoli or Palestine or what have you, uh, don't worry, we, we're returning to these uh, subjects in a later episode, but this is just Britain and the West, 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 Western Front. Okay, so um, Edmonds gets scribbling away. What sort of pressures were being put on him to produce uh, yeah, uncontroversial history? Should, we, should I put it that way? So this is a, a subject of debate, actually, about how much pressure was put on Edmonds from above. And historians disagree with it about how much was placed on him. As far as I can tell, he had two serious pressures. One was financial pressure in that his, his budget was minuscule. And so therefore his staff was very small. And secondly, his, his other pressure was dealing with characters and people and generals and politicians who he was writing about who were still alive. And he had to tread relatively carefully as long as they were still alive. But in terms of actually the government directing this um, the only real pressure comes initially, which is Edmonds is under some subtle pressure, produce a volume that's going to pour cold water on this Battle of the Memoirs, which he does with the 1914 volume. And I think that once he's done that, Edmonds starts getting looser and freer with his prose. And in this, I have to say, I'm hugely indebted to my PhD student, John McIntyre, who's currently working on John, James Edmonds as a historian. That's his subject and as Absolutely gone into this with huge depth. So, John, if you're listening, I'm, I'm stealing your ideas here, or I'm previewing your ideas for a wider audience. But after that initial review, or the initial reviews are very positive, and the government's very happy, it's, it's achieved what it wants to achieve, and Edmund starts to get more and more opinionated and under yeah. less and less control. And he starts to say more and more about what he really thinks, and he starts to lose sight a little bit of what he was originally employed to do. Well, I've always thought that the idea that Edmonds was writing bland official history, uh, I, I think Little Harter we'll talk about later, described as being official but not history, actually uh, falls down if you bother to read what he actually writes. Because actually he can be quite cutting in places, although I think it's fair to say that he doesn't put his criticism front and centre. But if you read sometimes between the lines, or sometimes he's actually explicit, but he tends to put it in footnotes and appendices and what have you. So the idea that uh, Edmonds is bland, mouthpiece for the establishment, it's, it's, it's complete nonsense. Um, in, in addition to your PhD student, uh, the, the other two scholars who've worked on Edmonds are, are David French and Andrew Green. And actually, um, French and Green, both good scholars, uh, David French is an excellent scholar, in fact, um, disagree on, on, on certain things. So here's an example of, of, of a debate which is still going on. Absolutely right. And and I don't think it will necessarily be settled for uh, a long time to come because he wrote so much and he lived such a long life. He didn't die until the early 60s. He was well into his 90s when he died. Huge correspondence, enormous literary output and, and overwhelming influence. Because I think the other point about Edmund, although very few people will have read every volume of the official history, and I can hand on heart say I've not read all of them cover to cover, but I've read very large portions of them. They are incredibly influential, often without people realising how influential they are. In fact, I 
I would say with, with high confidence that you could pick up almost any popular history of the First World War, popular history, I stress, published in the last 20 or 30 years, and read it and compare it to the same volume that's covered that's covered by Edmonds or the same period covered by Edmonds, and you would see direct echoes in that. Without people realising it, Edmonds had an enormous influence on how we see British battles of the First World War. Oh, yeah. In fact, it goes back a lot further than that, I would say. I, I'm doing some work on John Terrain, okay. who we'll be discussing uh, again in, in, in a future episode. And rereading his book on Mons, The Retreat to Victory, which came out, I think, in 1960. or there, there, uh, I about. think it was 60, yes, yes. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> I was reading it, I thought, familiar. And I went back and actually some of his stuff is quite a close paraphrase of, of Edmonds. Uh, mm-hmm. Not a criticism of terrain particularly, but actually to make the point that um, Edmonds was, in, was incredibly influential. Right, but let's force you to sort of nail your, your colours to, to, to the mast. We're talking about the emergence of the lions led by Donkey. To what extent does Edmonds foster that myth or does he simply provide the ground on which other people start to build that myth? If, if anything, he tries his best to stop that myth developing. Now, Edmonds has his bet noirs. He has people he really doesn't like. He doesn't like Sir John French. He doesn't like Henry Wilson. He's There's various other characters he doesn't like. He doesn't like Julian Bing. He doesn't especially like Edmund Allenby. And he certainly takes pot shots at these famous figures. But what he doesn't do is systematically dis- deconstruct the idea. Um, he doesn't try and portray the British Army's trials and tribulations as the responsibility of general. Instead, he places it a layer above. He's, his primary argument is it was the fault of the British government, politicians, that put the British army in a very, very difficult position by going to war with an army not prepared for war of this scale, by failing to, to adequately equip it in 1915 and 16, by interfering with it and its decisions in 1917, and then by denuding it of troops in 1918. And so if there's a donkey in James Edmonds's official history, it's not Douglas Hagen, it's not um, even Sir John French, who he has very little time for, it's actually the British government and the politicians. And above all else, Prime Minister from December 16 onwards, David Lloyd George, who, of yeah. course, we'll hear a little more about later. So Edmonds set out to portray a version of the First World War where the army fought as hard as it could, did the best it could with what it had against a very formidable German opponent. And where it was flawed, although he doesn't overlook individual flaws or military errors, much of the blame lies on politicians and the way the British government handled the war rather than the army. Now, by then he published his first volume in 1922. By the late 1920s, Edmonds was quite a significant figure in British historiography already. His influences of the official historian meant that he was widely sought out by journalists and wanted to interview him or get scoops. And although his definition as a journalist could be discussed. One of those who had the most privileged access to James Edmund was Basil Little Hart, who would frequently take lunch and dinner with him, essentially pump him for information. And it was much of that sharing of information that would inform Basil Little Hart's own work. And that would lead to a really important volume of his own. Could you tell us a little bit about that, guy? Right. Well, Little Hart is an absolutely fascinating character. Um, he's, he's hugely influential for a very long time, from the mid-20s, up to his death in 1907. Uh, so just to put this in, in perspective, uh, he as is, is having these sort of boozy lunches with, uh, um, with Edmonds, but he's also an advisor on the BBC Great War series, which comes out in the mid-1960s. And Little Hart has an enormous influence on that generation of historians 
of the late 50s and 60s. And I guess you could almost describe it sort of a form of apostolic succession. That influence continues to this present day. So if I can put it this way, um, I'm, I, I, I'm suppose, I'm suppose, I suppose I'm in that continuity because my PhD supervisor was Professor Brian Bond, who was a friend and protege of Little Heart, although actually Brian um, really was the first person to start to unravel the, uh, the mystique of Little Heart back in the 1970s. Uh, and there were various other historians of my generation who are, if you like, at, at, at two removes from, from Little Heart. So Little Heart's influence is absolutely enormous. Um, now, uh, just to say something briefly about the relationship between Little Heart and Edmund, uh, as, as you mentioned, Spence, his nickname, his, his appropriately uh, 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 nickname from antiquity was Archimedes. I would suggest a better nickname for him, Procopius, who <laughs> was the official historian of the, em the Byzantine emperor Justinian, who wrote these, this history of saying what a wonderful guy uh, uh, his, his boss Justinian was. He also wrote something called A Secret History, in which he gave his true view on Justinian, which were not entirely flattering, even less so against his wife, Theodora. And the same way, Edmonds was saying one thing in his histories, but he was having lunches and writing letters with people like Little Hart, in which he was being very critical of people like Haig, people like Goff. And so there is that sort of double game that Edmonds is playing. And this helps to feed Little Hart's uh, approach to the First World War. Now, Basil Little Hart, uh, served as a subaltern fairly briefly on the Western Front with the King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry. He fought at the Somme, was badly traumatised. He was uh, evacuated sick after only a few weeks, had a very nasty experience. And thereafter, he didn't serve uh, on the Western Front again. He, did, he, he wasn't there in 1918 in particular, which is, is quite a big deal, because he missed what was happening to the British Army in 1918. Well, in 1916, he was a completely credulous hero worshipper of the General Douglas Haig. He wrote this little book basically saying how wonderful they were. It actually wasn't published until quite recently, in fact, edited by, by Brian Bond, I seem to remember. But if you read it, it's, it, it, it's, it's ludicrously he hero worship. And if you're looking for an example of disillusionment, Basil Littleheart, because by the late 20s, he's flipped, uh, you know, almost facing the opposite direction. And he's come to see that the, the British generals of the First World War in the terms you've just described as quintessential donkeys. And in a book called uh, The Real War, uh, published in 1930, later republished as The History of the World War, and later still as A History of the First World War. And I remember reading that in the 1970s uh, as, a, as, a, as, as a young, young, young student. He really goes in, you know, uh, uh, feet first tackle studs up. And he, he blames British generalship, and in particular, I think Douglas Haig, uh, he sees them as being the, the architects of the destruction of a generation, of course, his generation. And because he actually has to make a living, he's a very prolific journalist. He writes books, he writes articles for newspapers and so on and so forth. He becomes very influential. He writes for big papers. And so therefore, he has uh, a sort of entree to the, the great of politics and military, but also his views are being read at middle-class breakfast table over the, over the porridge and boiled eggs. Now, that means that he's able to, A, push this lion's led by donkeys approach at a time in the le very late 20s, early 30s, 
in which this is becoming fashionable. I think it's fair to say up to about 1929, people are fairly respectful of the generals of the Great War. Um, Douglas Haig dies in 1928, which in a sense clears the way for people to have open season on generals, because Haig is, of course, a great national hero after the First War. Um, but the other thing is, there's almost like a, an emotional dam. So in 1929, you get the, Brit the uh, English translation of Eric Marira remarks, All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, you get uh, R.C. Sheriff's Journey's End. You get Sassoon stuff being published and all the rest of it. All of this means suddenly it's, it's intellectually very, very popular to be anti-general. Now, it's fair to say that not everybody takes this view. Uh, I would actually argue maybe even if there's a silent majority that don't. But nonetheless, the people who are in the, the 1930s equivalent of the chattering classes very much do. And if you look at what Little Hart's writing, he tends to concentrate very much on military operations. So he ignores politics, economics, even the Navy to a very large extent. And he zooms in on the Somme and Passchendaele and pays very little attention to 1918. And particularly, he says next to nothing about the Hundred Days, those great battles in which the Allied armies with the British Expeditionary Force in the fore beats the German army in the field. So in, in that sense, he's uh, he's pushing an open door. He's talking to people who want to hear this sort of stuff. But by focusing very narrowly on 1916, 1917 and downplaying 1918, I think he actually does a disservice to historiography and puts rocket boosters under the whole lines of by donkeys. Or am I, am I being unfair? No, I think that's a, a very fair summary of Little Hart's turn um, away from, as you say, always hagiography um, of generals to start with to this very critical approach. And one thing that I just add even more emphasis to that you've already established is Little Hart is widely read by what we would now call class or more the chattering classes. He's read at breakfast and after dinner because as well as publishing books, he's also a prolific journalist who, who is listened to, respected. And I have to say, he's also very readable. When you put Little Hart next to Edmonds in terms of their writing, Edmonds is a much better writer, incidentally, than many of his critics will allow. Yes, there's some dull passages in the official history, but also some beautiful turns of phrase. But Little Hart is a journalist and he really knows how to write. And it's a multi-pronged assault because as well as the real war being published, it's also um, his journal articles, his newspaper columns as well. And they're being read and they're, they're filtering all this information in. Yeah, um, that's true. Um, just to point out one of the deep flaws of Little Hart as a historian, as in the, the book, which becomes the history of, 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 of the First World War, he says very little about economic. But in the last chapter, he says, in effect, well, if you want to know what defeated the Germans in the First World War, it was a British blockade. And yet he's written almost nothing about it in the book. It's, again, like one of those, <laughs> we've both had these, I know, Spencer, essays in which a student suddenly produces this huge fact at the end and say, well, that, that proves this particular point without having made any attempt to explain their, their uh, uh, reasoning up to that point. And so I think Little Hart is quite limited as a historian, but as you say, he's a brilliant writer. I think it's fair to say that he's not someone I have particularly warmed to over my academic career. Uh, no doubt people will say that I'm being very unfair. Uh, his ideas as a strategist, I think, uh, do bear examining, although, again, I'm not entirely convinced by them. But viewed narrowly as a historian of the First World War, there's really, really big gaps uh, mm. in, his, uh, in his knowledge. And of course, just to slightly eat our sandwiches from, from, from a later uh, podcast, uh, who are the sort of the, the, the angry young men of the 50s and 60s uh, in terms of military history, talking to people like 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 Alan Clark, they're talking to Little Hart. 
And so actually having sort of inflicted his views on the British public in the 1930s, he then does it all over again in the 1960s. Um, Little Hart's reputation goes into a bit of a doldrum during the Second World War. For example, he's, um, he's a critic of, of, of total war, uh, but he rebuilds that in the 1960s and say by about 1960s, 60, he's once again, he's the, the great guru of, um, of, of, of British military history. Just to, I gave a, give an example of this. When uh, John Terrain, who we'll be discussing in a, in, in a later uh, podcast, he publishes his hugely revisionist, very important, his uh, biography of Douglas Haig, Douglas Haig, Educated Soldier, which comes out in 1963. Little Hart organises uh, a campaign of hostile review to the extent he actually writes up a series of notes by which people uh, can use to attack this, this book and sends it to potential reviewers. Um, I got to know the, uh, the the late, great Professor Sir Michael Howard quite well in, in, in his last years. And he actually showed me the, the letter that he was sent by, by Little Hart. And, 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 and Michael Howard, to his great credit, basically ignored it and wrote, I think, a very fair and very, very quite favourable review of John Terrain's book. However, the actor John, uh, sorry, the actor George Sewell, who played Haig in the play um, Oh, What a Lovely War, which came out in the early 1960s, he wrote a review of the book. I'm not entirely sure what his credentials for writing, part of the fact he was an actor playing Haig, mm. and he gave the game away by saying, Captain Little Hart has actually very helpfully told me what to write in this, this, this review. So actually, the point is that Little Hart is hugely influential over two, uh, over at least to to two generations and again just this is a little bit getting ahead of ourselves but just to emphasize the incredible importance of little heart who hangs over all first world war historiography like a a, a zeppelin is that even at long after little heart's death his influence was still felt because i mentioned just a, a little bit earlier that he and edmunds became friends the extent of their friendship is still debated but they certainly had plenty of lunches and dinners together and in these lunches and dinners Edmonds would give Little Heart all kinds of juicy anecdotes. And, and many of these anecdotes were, were Edmonds's personal prejudices. The, the lots of doubt was being cast on the veracity of these anecdotes. There's even a suggestion Edmonds was teasing Little Heart by telling him obviously made-up stories. I think Little that's Hart, true. I think there's some truth in that. Some of these stories are just unbelievable, but Little Heart scribbled them all down. And now, of course, they're all in the Little Heart archive. And this has led to historians, um, notably Tim Travers, who we'll talk about in a later episode, uh, went and took these at face value and thought, oh, this is an indictment of the British command. And so even after Little Heart's death, he's, his legacy still felt through his, his personal paper. Let me give an example of that. When I wrote my biography of, uh, of, of Haig, 10, 12, whatever it was years ago, um, I was looking for juicy stuff to put in, to be honest. It's largely a military biography. I wanted some more personal stuff. And suddenly I come across this reference to Haig having an affair while he was in India, uh, having left Lady Haig and the little Haiglets at home. I thought, oh, right, there's something juicy I can put in. And then I checked, oh, it's from Edmunds. It's obviously made up. Uh, and I'm sure this is something that Edmunds threw out because he was basically mischievous and he liked to wind people up. Also, he didn't like Haig. Okay, well, We've talked a lot about Little Heart and your point about his influence on other writers, I think is very well made. And actually, you can see that by looking at the, uh, the next book I'm going to mention briefly, which is A History of the Great War, published in 1934 by C.R.M.F. Crutwell. Now, Crutwell is, I say, almost forgotten, not, not forgotten by historians, but certainly his name 
has dropped out of sort of public debate in a way that Little Hearts haven't. But at the time, the publication of his book was quite a big deal, and he was uh, an influential historian. Now, his background is that he's an Oxford don. He's at Hartford College, Oxford, uh, before the war. He joins up, he joins his brother in a territorial battalion of the uh, Royal Berkshire, the first fourth Royal Berkshire, I think, I think it is. And, and, he, and he serves on the Western. Uh, he actually is invalided out. He's, he, he then goes off and does, does, does something else uh, after the Somme. But he's a man who has hands-on experience, and in fact, a lot more hands-on experience than Little Heart, or at least in terms of frontline service, than, than, than Ed, Edmunds either. And um, he's, some people after the war think he's got shell shock because his personality becomes very rude, very abrasive. He becomes a very difficult, very difficult man. Well, if it is shell shock or psychiatric disorder of some sort brought upon by war, what this does is uh, exacerbate character traits that are already there because he already, before the war, has a reputation for being immensely rude and immensely difficult. Uh, now, if anybody has ever heard of him at all outside the circle of military historians, it would be through Evelyn War, the, uh, the, the, the great novelist, who actually uh, knew um, Crutwell when he was an undergraduate at Oxford and learned to loathe him. In fact, one of his books, Crutwell appears as Sniggs, the, the, the junior dean who's a, 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 an appalling character, you know, has no redeeming figures, uh, no, no redeeming characters whatsoever. And of course, Evelyn War being Evelyn, Evelyn War, he let this be known. And so there was a lot of sort of pun intended sniggering about, uh, about, about Crutwell because he, he, he's been parodied in... Um, I can't remember which, which Wars books it is. But anyway, but he, he, he comes in for a, for a, for a good comes in for a good literary kicking. Sorry, I, I, I actually had a bad stammer as a small child. And occasionally, even to this day, it kicks in. So there you go. Uh, an operation uh, 50 odd years ago didn't entirely cure the problem. Crockwell's book, I think, is, is significant. And it's a shame it's been, it's been over, overlooked. I first came across it, actually, because it published, republished as a paperback. Uh, in 1982. So I read it as an undergraduate or, or shortly after I graduated. And I thought it was, still do, uh, well worth reading, uh, not least because Crockwell combines a history of the war, must be said it's very Western Front focused, with this personal experience. So at one point, he writes a, a very moving and certainly very heartfelt passage on what it's like to be in a gas attack. And that's something which I think, you know, makes the point that this is a man writing about the Western Front, who knows what he's talking about from first hand. He's been there. He's been shot at. He's, uh, he's suffered uh, all the dangers of the Western Front. And how does this contribute to the, the donkey's myth? Well, oddly, not as much as he, as he might have done, but certainly he's very critical of staff and individual generals. So um, Rawlinson, for example, comes off very badly for, uh, uh, because, of, because of the Somme. Uh, Krupp, of course, having fought in Fourth Army on, on, on the Somme. Now, interestingly, he doesn't, he has a rather more nuanced view of Haig. If I just quote what, what, what he says, that Haig grew with disappointment and disaster till he stood out in the very last months of the war as a very great general. Now, actually, interestingly, that prefigures what a lot of moderns, myself included, would say about Haig, that yes, he did make mistakes with terribly bloody consequences, but he did learn, did apply his learning, and his finest moment is certainly in the Hundred Days, uh, the great victorious battle of 1918. Um, so Crockwell, I think, contributes to the lines of by Donkey's debate, but in a more nuanced way. But bear in mind that people 
in the early 1930s, or for that matter today, don't tend to history books with a great deal of nuance. I suspect what they picked up was the nasty stuff being gassed uh, and the fact that he, he thinks that the, uh, the, the, the staff of these sort of gilded popinjays were sending off honest soldiers to, 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 to their deaths. Just remind me, Gary, because I, I can't remember. When, when is this published? What year does it come out? It comes out in 1934, and there's a second edition, I think, two years later. So I think that the timing there is very significant, too, because the, the, the 1930s are literary scene of the First World War has been completely upended by All Quiet on the Western Front, which, although that's a, a novel, of course, from a German perspective, it's unbelievable success. Uh, it's a publishing phenomenon. It leads to publishers. Publishers follow the money. Even, even then, publishers start looking specifically for All Quiet on the Western Front style books. There's a, there's a noticeable change in British literature of the war around that time, uh, both fiction uh, and also non-fiction. And there's there's a that that particularly appears in magazines and, and newspapers. Certainly, the, the reflection on the war is a little bit different. It's very much through the prism of all quite on the Western Front. But there's also a, a huge uptick in interest in reading about the war in that period. Whereas the publishing industry for the First World War is, is it's not it's never stopped, but it's definitely gone it gone a little bit lower from 1926 onwards. Suddenly, it's revitalised. People are interested in the war again, and so although Crockwell might not be being as widely read as Little Heart this is still a very fertile period for First World War history. Oh, absolutely. And you can make a sort of comparison with what happens with Vietnam literature after about 1980-ish. When, when, when does The Deer Hunter come out? Anyway, late, late, late 70s. You suddenly see there's a lot of Vietnam films, memoirs, books being produced. There does seem to tend to be a bit of a gap between the end of the war and a renewal of interest, maybe because it's a slightly younger generation coming through. But that's that's certainly true with um, with Crockwell. I think that's absolutely right. Um, the final point I want to make about Crockwell before we before we move on is to go back to what you were saying uh, about Little Heart earlier. Crockwell and Little Heart actually are direct rivals in the sense their books come out at the same sort of time and they are they are both on, on, on the same sort of subject. But actually Crockwell and Little Heart become friends and Crockwell becomes more and more um, enamoured of Little Hart's views on generalship, to the extent that he actually writes to Little Hart. This is all coming, by the way, from a, 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 a chapter about, about Crutwell uh, and Little Hart, indeed, Cyril Forbes, we'll talk about later, uh, by, by Hugh Strawn, published in a book by Brian Bond, The First World War in British Military History, which came out in 1991. Well, uh, Hugh, Hugh Strawn says that um, Crutwell tells Little Hart when he revises his book again, he will bring his views on Haig in line with Little Hearts. So here's an example of a man who is being persuaded out of a nuanced view of Haig into a much less nuanced view uh, by the power of Basil Little, Little Heart. All of this, I think, leading in, in the direction of, uh, of the, the, the growth of the, the lines led, led by donkeys. Um, well, there's one person I think we might have mentioned briefly, but has a connection with Little Heart. Also, a huge impact on lines led by donkeys, and that is no less than prime, former Prime Minister David Lloyd George. And I think are we allowed to say disgraced former Prime Minister? I think that's harsh. I think that's harsh, and I'm going to explain to you and the listeners why. Because despite everything about Lloyd George, I, I find him a fascinating figure, a maddening figure. Uh, the more I've read about him, the more I've studied his papers. This, this is a man who's clearly got much to admire about him. He's charismatic, he's talented, there's no, you cannot deny his talents as a politician, as a deal maker. But he's also 
got serious flaws. Um, you know, absolutely incorrigible adulterer, completely dishonest with his finances, uh, morally very dubious, perhaps even morally repugnant as an individual. Now, could you possibly draw a parallel with a much more recent disgraced British Prime Minister? I couldn't possibly comment, Gary. Well, so no, we, 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 we shouldn't go there. <laughs> but we can draw some parallels with modern politicians today in the terms of David without David Lloyd George, the uh, preferred route for failed politicians or, or failed prime ministers where they now go in on the speaking circuit and get paid five or even six figures to give speeches, uh, not to mention enormous deals for their um, for their memoirs. Certainly the memoir part owes almost everything to David Lloyd George, because in the early 1930s, Lloyd George, who's perennially short of money, he couldn't manage his own finances at all, was keen to, to make some money. And one of the ways he could do that was to write a war memoir. And initially approached about doing this, he saw it mainly as a way of making money, but he then came to see it as a way of putting the record straight. And he would publish a multi-volume series of war memoirs uh, in multiple uh, um, versions, in fact. His, his overall war, war memoirs were started being published in 33, ran until 36. They proved so popular in their multi-volume form, uh, an abridged two-volume version was published. It, that's the one that's by far the most common. It was sold at a, a lower price. It's still, I think, at well over 2,000 pages in these two volumes. Uh, but it's the essence, it distills the essence of Lloyd George. The deal Lloyd George received for this was astronomical. It was the, he was the most paid war memoirist of the First World War. So as well as making an absolute fortune, it was also part of a very, very wide publishing deal, which would see parts of it serialised um, in newspapers and magazines. It would be supported by a talking tour. It would be supported in, in many ways. It was in many ways a very modern launch for a book. And it would actually inspire... Um, Winston Churchill's Second World War. But Lloyd George was writing this at the perfect time too, because we've just established in the early 30s that the mood in Britain, the literary mood certainly had gone into a much more anti-war feel, influenced by All Quiet on the Western Front, by Little Heart, by Crockwell. And Lloyd George was coming into a field that had been prepared for him. People were now a lot more cynical, perhaps, about what the war had been about, what it had represented. Of course, you've got the background of the Great Depression too, so there's economic hardship, there's a feeling of what were we fighting for? What happened? Where did it all go wrong? And Lloyd George, who was though still in politics, was far from power, now had the, essentially a reading audience in the palm of his hand. And he set out the most systematic character assassination, I think, in British political history. He set out to destroy systematically the reputations of everybody he didn't like. And within that context, he didn't like a lot of people. Absolutely. And of course, it's worth mentioning that. Uh... Little, uh, little Heart is giving a fair amount of help to uh, Lloyd George at this stage. Well, talk about character assassination. I think it's fair to say that uh, indexes are not sort of normally rip-roaring reads, but we make an exception for Lloyd George's war memoirs. Let me read just a few extracts from a very, very long index entry on Douglas Haig. This is just from one page at the very end. Um, so talking about Haig, uh, Lloyd George refers to his inability to judge men, uh, liked his associates to be silent and gentlemanly, his intrigues against Lord French and Kitchener, his shabby treatment of Goff, um, his, uh, uh, sorry, uh, his cavalry obsession, 
his attempt to shirk blame for March 1918 defeat. It goes on and on and on like that. I think it's fair to say that Lloyd George was not a fan of Douglas Haig. Key thing to remember is Haig is dead by this stage. He's in no position to come back and make a rebuttal. That's that's absolutely true. So Haig, Haig is dead. And crucially, too, the, the mood around this has changed. People are much more open to the idea of, of um, serious assaults on the reputations of generals. And Lloyd George is a, is a fine writer. And he's, as you say, he's aided by Baz Little Heart. He's also aided by the British Civil Service. Uh, he has access to all kinds of paperwork that isn't normally available to, to people who are opposing him. Many of his enemies have now died. Lord Kitchener, for example, uh, Douglas Haig. Uh, and that they can't respond, and he can tear them, tear them apart. And the the success of this volume is something that that again is often forgotten because David Lloyd George has, has rather fallen out of the historical memory. Really, he's unless you're a, a dedicated historian of politics or the First World, you probably won't have come across him. But in the 1930s, he's a very, very famous man, and he's got tremendous access to publication in, in beyond the books. And so this is, it's not just read in its book form, it's also read in newspapers, it's read in magazines, it's even discussed on the radio at times. And so it's its reach is absolutely vast. Well, before I take a break, I think it's worth just sort of summarising where we are um, with Lloyd George. Um, as you say, Lloyd George's war memoirs, uh, not much read these days. In fact, if you go to a secondhand bookshop, you're likely to find a dusty set of the two volume ones. But they were hugely influential. And, and you don't have to sit down and read whatever it is, thousands of pages of, of, uh, of, of, of books in order to get his views, because you would read about them in newspapers, people would talk about them. And I think Lloyd George, possibly the single most important person in giving a, a boost to the line said by Donkey Smith. Do you think that's that's I, true? I would completely agree. And, and just to echo the point about finding Lloyd George's memoirs in the second-hand second hand shops, one of the reasons you they're so easy to find, especially the condensed version, is so many of these books were printed and sold. This was a massive seller. It, it sold like hotcakes. Um and, and so it was widely read, it was widely discussed, and it set, even if you didn't necessarily read them cover to cover, as you've just picked out from the index, his choice phrases were so cutting that they would stick in your mind. And he would publish parts of these in, in newspapers and so forth, so that it absolutely infused the historiography. And we can say that Lloyd George, um, may, his political career may have been in the doldrums, he never really recovered. But what he did do in the 1930s was he won, in his own lifetime, the Battle of the Memoirs. He, he defeated the generals and he established his view of the war that would dominate for decades uh, to come and still has resonance to this. OK, on that, we'll take a break and we'll come back and continue discussing The Lions Led by Donkeys. So far, we've heard about James Edmonds, we've heard about Basil Little Hart, we've heard about Crockwell, we've heard about Lloyd George, who all of whom have been moving in a direction where the portrayal of the war is increasingly negative and the idea that the British High Command were donkeys is getting more and more established. But what about influential dissenting voices against this, this downstream motion? Was there anybody writing a, an alternative that was getting a, a wide audience? Uh, yes, there was, um, but it's still drowned out, I think, the more discordant voices. Point worth making is that a lot of people are writing about the first time, and we tend to think they're all disillusioned, but that's not true by any means. Now, the analogy is a bit like it's the early 60s in Liverpool, and the Beatles have made it big. And so suddenly, uh, record producers are rushing up to, to Merseyside to sign up any group of, 
long-haired youth playing a guitar who can sing a song. In the same sort of way, the success of various war memoirs and war novels in the early 30s meant there's this huge market for all sorts of takes on the First World War. And a lot of them are neutral about the war in the sense that they don't really come down whether it's good or bad. Some are even positive. Um, so there, there is a much uh, wider range of voices than you would be forgiven for thinking, given the, the, the famous one, ones that uh, survive to today. And um, one person I find particularly interesting and actually not as influential as, as he should have been really is, is Cyril Falls. Now, Falls was uh, an Osterman, uh, a Pro Protestant who actually was a university graduate at the beginning of the First World War, he was a, a clerk in the Foreign Office, and he joins the army. He joins the uh, 11th Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers, part of the 36th Ulster Division. Now, of course, it's a very political division. We um, need to bear in mind that it was formed, at least in part, out of the Ulster Volunteer Force, which was threatening to, uh, you know, armed uprising against the Crown in opposition to, to Home Rule in 1914. Uh, but there, it finds itself on the Western Front and falls fights with it uh, in 1915 and during the Somme. In fact, he actually gets moved on to become a sort of staff officer uh, in 1916. But he has these, these close connections with the division and actually has quite a, a dangerous role uh, going into, into front, front line positions. Now, if you look at what uh, Falls is writing and thinking, it's a much broader view than I think any of the others, and more scholarly in that sense than even Crockwell, who actually is, is an Oxford don. I should say Falls is a journalist, and later he does go on to become a university academic. Now, I think he's, in terms of his treatment of the war, he's probably the most scholarly of all the people that we've discussed so far. And if you read his history of the 36th Ulster Division, uh, it's one of the best divisional histories. Stands up really well to this present day. And he is brought on to the official history writing team uh, by Edmonds, who's actually impressed by, by what, what he's read of Falls. And mostly Falls deals with non-Western Front stuff. So, for example, he writes uh, a volume on, on, on Palestine, uh, but he also writes, or at least I think uh, does the initial draft anyway, for the volume on Arras in 1917, which comes out in 1940. Of course, going back to something you were saying earlier, while the Second World War is already in progress, they're still writing stuff about the First World War. You're right. And if you read Falls, he's a much more balanced, much more nuanced historian. Uh, but because, well, he really, he's not someone who particularly relishes personal vendettas and fighting. Um, so he's not like Little Hart, for example, who, you know, will always, always writing to the newspapers and taking people on and writing critical reviews. Falls simply isn't like that. I mean, not say entirely he's looking for a, a quiet life, but it's, it's just not his thing. And so Falls in the 1930s, I think, is not as influential as he should have been if he had been more of a Little Hart type figure. Possibly, just possibly, there would be a more balanced view of the First World War coming out. Anyway, but like Little Hart, uh, and various other people. Falls, his influence lasts far beyond that immediate post-war generation. One of the best books, best single volumes to this day ever published on the First World War is Cyril Falls' book, which comes out as late as 1960. Now, I've written um, two general histories of the First World War. I, I wrote one, a huge, great coffee table book uh, back in the 1980s. One of the first things I had published, I mean, coffee table in a sense, you could literally screw 
legs to the corner and have 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 your have your have your meal off it's a, a huge great thing and i must say i was really really impressed and influenced by reading Cyril Falls book because it was so good it was so nuanced and he had a really really broad view he's not fixated on the west western front in a way that all the other people we have discussed have have, have been but the problem is the book, his timing wasn't very good. That book coming out in 1906, had it come out in 1935, might have made a real difference. But by 1960, in one sense, the arguments have moved on. Another sense, the arguments are about to begin all over again, because we come into the period of what John Terrain dismissively called the instant historians, in which you have a lot of people aiming to make a, a quick buck, basically, and they recycle the criticisms of the 30s for a new audience. There's a new audience who in the late 50s, early 60s, are becoming interested in the First World War uh, with, because the Second World War is receding into the distance. And so the big irony is you get this really, really excellent, scholarly nuanced one-volume history coming out in 1960. In 1961, you have possibly the worst book ever written of the First World War, in my humble opinion, though there's quite stiff competition. Uh, Alan Clark's book, The Donkeys, which is a study of British generalship in 1915. And it is, he's not the per first person to use that phrase, led, led by donkeys, but certainly he gives it a, a massive boost. And his picture of Hague and the generals is as um, dismissive as you might imagine from that title. And it's a very poor, very shoddy piece of history. And actually, people like Michael Howard say as much at the time. But of course, it sells bucket loads. It gets a little heart stamp of approval. And he said, uh, um, sorry, um, Clark is not the first person to come up with a book like this. So, for example, American Leon Wolfe wrote a book uh, on, on Passchendaele in the late 50s, uh, which is also very critical. But nonetheless, Clark is the, is, is the man who sets up this new generation of donkey bashing for the 1960s. You mentioned, and this is a theme I think we've hit on several times in this, about popularity of books, because some books just catch fire. And you mentioned that Alan Clark's book, The Donkeys, sold like hot cakes, which of course it did. What was made, What was driving these sales? What made it such a hit? How did it capture the zeitgeist? Well, partly it's very well written, because whatever else you might say about Clark as a historian, uh, as as an author, he was very skilled. I mean, he was a journalist, effectively. And he certainly has a, a very good turn of the phrase. There's also, it's been suggested that the First World War, um, interest is revived because of the Cold War. And so, of course, 1960, it's the coming up to the peak of the, of, of, of the Cold War. Cuba Missile Crisis uh, is only a year after the publication of the Donkeys. And somehow the existential threat to British life, human civilization, sharpens interest in an earlier category. And so yeah, very much the CND generation are reading this stuff. But they're not the only people like that at all, because Clark, of course, famously, is not, le not a left-wing critic. He's a right-wing critic. He goes on to become a Tory MP, becomes a minister uh, in Margaret Thatcher's government, and I think actually in John Major's as well. And he is famously right-wing on a whole range of issues. And his, I think, big beef with the First World War is that it undermined Britain as a great power. It helped to hollow out the British Empire. So looking at it in a very different way, for example, than from A.J.P. Taylor, who writes his illustrated history of the First World War uh, a year or two later, who is a left-wing critic of the First World War. So 
perhaps this, this is a point to sort of start to draw stumps. On the left and the right, in political terms in Britain in the early 60s, there is a joint critique of the First World War. They might come at it from different angles, but they're all basically arguing the same thing, that the First World War was a tragedy, that the conduct of the battles on the Western Front were disastrous, and ultimately, it's largely the, the fault of the generals, particularly the uh, premier donkey, Douglas Haig. Do you think that's a fair summary of, of where we are in the early 60s? I think that's absolutely correct, Gary. I think and I hope that the listeners will have who followed us along with this will have seen how how this was created as well from Edmonds trying to write a very ultimately balanced military history that was pro-army, but being outflanked on all sides by the more um, popular writings of Little Hart Crotwell and above all else Lloyd George. And one thing that I think is quite interesting is, of course, when you've got people like Clark writing, the National Archives or, or the PRO, the Public Record Office as it was then, has not yet opened the files from the First World War. And so these authors are hugely indebted to the work that's been done prior to the Second World War. You, you can see Lloyd George's fingerprints all over Alan Clark's The Donkeys, uh, absolutely everywhere. And so they're, they're the successors to this, um, to this earlier writing. But of course, Clark's writing almost 30 years after Lloyd George first started publishing his memoirs in 1933. And it's for a new generation who are suddenly picking this up. And of course, they're also reading it in the shadow of the Second World War, as you say, which seems to stand in such contrast to the First World War. And it's finding a very, very ready audience. And it is creating a, a myth, essentially, because so much of this is drawn from the, the very mischievous writing of Little Heart. And it's creating a myth that starts to become accepted as fact. And I would say, are we at perhaps a nadir of studying the, the uh, military command in the First World War in the early 1960s. Well, thanks, Spence. I really enjoyed that discussion. And of course, as you allude to, the big question is, what happens next? How does the historiography of the British on the Western Front move on since after the lions led by donkeys? Uh, either Nadir or, um, or Summit, depends on your point of view. Or does it move on? Well, to answer that question, you're going to have to listen to us in the first episode of series two, which will be out in the autumn. Well, once again, I'd like to thank everybody for listening. We're aiming to build up a community, the, the Military History Plus Collective, if you like, to watch this space and indeed Twitter for future development. As a first step, we're devoting a future episode to answering your questions about military history. So you, if you have any questions for us, please email us at questions at militaryhistoryplus.com. Military History Plus is all one word. Uh, and you can find that uh, address on our website or tweet me at Prof G Sheffield or what's your Twitter handle, Spence? My, mine is historian1914, all one word. And if you do tweet us, can you please use the hashtag militaryhistorypluspod? Okay, well, once again, um, Please do leave your reviews and ratings on whatever platform you use to listen to this podcast. And so for now, it's goodbye from me, Professor Gary Sheffield. And it's goodbye from me, Dr. Spencer Jones. See you in the autumn.